Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash adventures in autism. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. everyone welcome to adventures in autism episode 126 i am megan carranza thank you so much for coming to listen if it is your first episode welcome so happy to have you and if you've been listening thank you so much for coming on back and as always i just have to start by saying thank you so much to everybody who not only supports a podcast, but really supports me personally. If you've listened to the last couple episodes of the show, then you know I have really opened up and done a deep dive into my personal journey with health and weight loss. And it's definitely kind of a departure from the things that we usually talk about on this show. But what has really surprised me and just been incredible is the the conversations that it's opened up with all of you. I'm hearing from more of you than ever. And, you know, like I said, we're talking about something different. It's not all about autism, but in some ways I think it's it's linked because, you know, at the end of the day, we're not just parents, we're people too. And I think it's so important to remember that, you know, you matter. And that's really why I have opened up about all this and shared so much because I just think it's so important. So again, thank you. Thank you so much to everybody just for listening and reaching out. Always love chatting with you guys. Um, Shifting gears to today's episode. I'm super excited about this one. My guest is Aaron Wright and he is a dad. He's an author. He has a book called 13 Doors and we're going to talk all about that. Aaron talks about his daughter who's a teenager now and really kind of their journey especially with navigating the school system. And what I loved about this conversation is that, you know, we talk about school and just kind of all of that a lot on the show, but this conversation was a little different. And especially with the way that Aaron presented it, it was really thought provoking for me and made me just kind of look at things differently. And he just, he had a lot of really amazing points that I know you guys are going to appreciate and just really enjoy listening to. So I'm really excited for this episode. I do want to say we had a little bit of a connection issue. There's some like overlapping at times, but everything Aaron says, his his message and talking about his book and all that really just comes across crystal clear. And honestly, I'm, I'm think it's just such a great episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to Adventures in Autism. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you. You had reached out to me on Instagram and I really was intrigued by your story and everything that you are working on now. So I'm excited to get into all of that. But if you will kind of take us back to the beginning of your journey, I would love to hear. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, you know, I thought maybe I had kind of the the typical family uh, life ahead of me, Uh, recently married, uh, had one child, had uh, my son, my oldest. and then uh, my daughter was born about a year and a half later. 
Uh, and I never paid much attention to kind of developmental milestones when my, you know, when my mm -hmm. son was uh, born, I think I was just kind of a happy go lucky, probably really naive uh, parent, <laughs> <laughs> you know, things happen. It's like, okay, well, we're eating solid food now. Okay. Well, we're crawling now. Okay. Well, we're walking now. Okay. We're saying our first word now. Um, so that mm -hmm. just, you know, it just kind of organically happened. And that was what was happening for, you know, friends of ours that had uh, kids in similar ages. Um, and then when my daughter was born, uh, probably about six months, she was probably about six months old when we first started noticing uh, things that were just, you know, noticeably different uh, from my son's development. And we really were lucky. Um, I can say lucky now, uh, in the moment, we didn't necessarily feel uh, overjoyed. But uh, we kind of had this crossroads of a few different things happen. One, we ourselves were noticing as parents, you know, this is really kind of a different progression for our daughter than it was for our son. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second thing being was more uh, of a medical concern. Uh, you know, you go to your pediatrician, these periodic visits for quote unquote, well baby checks, and they always kind of do, um, you know, measurements, right? Like height, um, weight, uh, head circumference. Uh, and at that point, we were noticing uh, developmental delays, but it was also coupled with uh, her head circumference being slightly on the, the larger side for her uh, age. So it really kind of pushed us down this road of, well, do we need to worry that she has you know, hydrocephalus or is there some sort of, um, you know, structural functional brain issue uh, at play? Uh, and so we landed kind of in the medical model or medical world first. Uh, and once we'd kind of excluded all of those things, you know, we kind of sat back and, you know, you know, thank goodness. Uh, but it didn't, you know, clearly didn't take away the fact that she was still not meeting milestones. And before she reached a year of age, we kind of had this fortuitous, serendipitous uh, encounter with uh, a woman who uh, effectively did social work for our county and helped kind of navigate between uh, she and our pediatrician kind of helped us navigate the referral process for early intervention services. And so from age, let's say it was at least 10 or 11 months on, uh, you know, we had a steady train of people coming in and out of the house and we were going back and forth to county-based services. So, you know, our, we feel very fortunate in that we were able to get those kind of critical early intervention services early and, uh, you know, much earlier than kind of the typical, um, you know, later diagnosis. And, you know, as we've kind of marched through this process and I've kind of gathered more facts and done more research, uh, it, girls typically are diagnosed uh, much later than boys. And yeah. that, you know, doesn't necessarily, it, it, it's not helpful uh, in, a, in a lot of ways mm -hmm. to not have that because it's, you know, lots of kind of early critical years where uh, those services are missed and, you know, allowing access and accommodations that would help you know, get them into their, uh, or allow access to education are just, you know, they're missing, whereas not necessarily for boys, but that that's kind of a, a different rabbit hole where there's some inherent biases within the system. So we really feel like we are fortunate in that respect. Um, and those early years, you know, we kind of look back on them, um, even just in photographs, it was, you know, we were smiley happy folks. We really didn't have any issues with services per se until we, 
reached that point where you have to transition from the regional-based system. So in California, there's a regional center-based system. I think it's probably different in every state, mm -hmm. but it's it's typically built around your county, uh, and it's not through your school district. But at age three, that then transitions, and all of those services interventions that may have been occurring from you know birth to age three, that responsibility then falls to your your local school district, uh, and that. Mm -hmm you know, kind of bureaucratic, uh, messy, conflicted process uh, actually is ultimately what brought me to you today, um, which is, you know, I really wanted to get that part of our story uh, out uh, to the public because I think it's a really, for us, as much as it felt like a unique, uh, painful experience, I think it's a very common uh, experience for families like ours and, and hopefully your readers. Absolutely. Or your, listen, your listeners, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, tell me more about that. So the, the typical process is that you, at age three, there's this transition, right? So you're going from early intervention services to uh, school-based services so that you're, you would be engaging like the preschool system and then it would be the gear up for kindergarten and then the early elementary years and, and so on. And there's this kind of transition uh, meeting. I think most there's different locales call them different things, but effectively you have to go through another round of testing, which you know, families like ours kind of know all too well, right? You're going through these kind of annual reviews of, um, you know, sensory skills or sensory um, issues and motor skills. And that, you know, becomes much more uh, magnified at that point when you engage the school system. But you really have to prove uh, at age three that you meet this kind of exquisite level of, of disability in order to qualify for these services. So what typically happens is that folks will be able to get access to these early intervention services from zero to three. And then there's a drop off from age three um, until typically kind of the middle elementary years. And that's really because there's this inherent conflict in the system where, mm -hmm. you know, the folks who are responsible for identifying that your child is disabled are also the same people who are tasked um, with paying, effectively paying for those services, right? They need to provide uh, the special education teacher or they need to be providing the occupational therapist. Uh, they need to be providing the speech uh, services. So there's a real disincentive to identify children uh, especially early on. And the special education model itself is kind of this deficits or fail first model. Uh, so it, you have a very difficult time proving, and I put proven quotes, that your child is disabled because they have not yet failed something. So it's kind of the opposite of someone who might have a physical disability where they might not even have a diagnosed physical disability, yet they need the ramp, the wheelchair ramp to be able to get into the building. Well, and that ramp is already there and it's made uh, for them and they don't have to push or fight or prove that they need to have access to it, right? They don't have to fall down the stairs before someone will say, okay, you get to use the ramp. Well, that's the, you know, not mm -hmm. the way that the special education system works. So there's really a lot of uh, pushback on the school side and then a lot of kind of self-doubt um, on the parent side. And that 
uh, collision can be really, uh, you know, I say it's transformative for parents. And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way because it really changes how parents are, uh, are forced to look at their children. So you're always kind of in this mode where you need to look at what is quote unquote wrong or what deficits uh, your child might be having or you know what they cannot do academically. And it, it really kind of warps the way you see your child um, and not necessarily mm-hmm. consciously. You know, I don't believe that parents think, of, think their children are, are bad, but because the way the system is built uh, it does shift your thinking. And then ultimately it shifts the thinking of all of the people around your child who need to be there to support them, whether that's the administrators or the teachers or the therapists. And ultimately it actually affects uh, the families of you know the neurotypical peers. So they don't necessarily see your child in the same light or hold them in the same light that you would as a parent or that they would as a neurotypical peer. Uh, because there is this focus on the negative aspect of your child. So it's just, it's just really rough. Uh, and for me, it was a really eye-opening uh, experience when we kind of hit that age three, where you know, we left these services uh, that were you know, this county-based or regional-based system, which felt really wonderful, really supportive. We really loved the people that we were uh, working with. You know, many of them had become you know, essentially friends um, and, you know, still to mm-hmm. this day, we're in, in contact uh, with them. And then you have this really abrupt shift to a system that, you know, on its face and what I remember as being a kid and having this, you know, public school experience, I remember, you know, liking my teachers. I remember liking that experience. I remember that they were there to be supportive of you. And then it really creates this kind of dissonance where you don't understand why, uh, this system that's supposed to be there to support your child just isn't and falling flat. Um, but unfortunately, it's just it's the way the system is built. And so many families like ours find themselves kind of mired in it and and ultimately fighting it. You know, it's mm-hmm. and that really is the crux of the problem is that parents you know have to fight this system that really is supposed to be there to support them. You know, there are laws you know, in place that you know, put the Individuals with Disability Education Act into place, but there's no policeman uh, of that law. The only way that, that that ever gets policed is by the parents themselves on an individual basis with each child. So there's no, you know, like there's no IRS coming in and auditing special education. The only way those audits, quote unquote, would happen is when parents kind of push back and say, you know what, this just isn't right. You know, my child is in a wheelchair, but you're only giving me a ramp that gets me 50% up the way to the school. So that's, it's really kind of this brain splitting time for parents. And it becomes this kind of annual fight, depending upon how long you stay in it. um, It can last all the way through high school. Yeah. Um, I am like (laughs) nodding my head to everything that you're saying. We, even though like you and I were talking beforehand, we haven't necessarily had these struggles um, just from doing the podcast and, you know, having different guests on, but then also talking with different listeners. I know this is, it really is like such a common issue. And I mean, it's so funny because I, I think back on like, you know, my own time in school. And it, it, if you'd asked me before my son was born, I would have, I would have not really had too much to say 
good or bad. But it's like once you kind of see how broken the system is, you realize even, you know, like like I said, even my own experience, I see how broken it was. And at the time, I never would have picked up on that. <laughs> no, and, uh, <laughs> my, yeah, my, no, I was going to say my my um, my middle daughter, she's we're homeschooling her this year just with COVID stuff, but she was in preschool last year through our district and she was in a a blended classroom she's typically developing but there were a few kids in her classroom and I don't know the specifics just because of you know like privacy laws and whatnot so I don't know what um the kids in her class like what their actual diagnosis was but I would there's a couple different times where I would come in and like help with parties or whatnot and I I saw these children in this this blended environment I'm using air quotes really struggling and thinking this is not the appropriate place for these kids because not only could were the you know the kids struggling but it was like the teachers were having to focus so much on these kids that were having more challenges that it was like the kids who were you know maybe not having as much of a challenge were sort of like left to their own devices Yeah. And it was like, I, so then it was like, I saw things from the other side where it's like, I'm usually, you know, on the other side of the table with my son, then it was like, I was on the other situation with my daughter. And so just seeing very much the broken system, it is, it's, it's very disheartening, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I do think thankfully there are parents like you and many others who are kind of like, disrupting that and speaking out and I'm hoping and praying that we can get to you know change at some right. point um tell me a little bit about like your personal story with this because I feel like we're getting sure. kind of a bird's eye view and you said it was a really hard time what was what was that like for you Rough. guys you know it's mm-hmm. um so like what you're saying with what's happening in the classroom so there's if there's children who are unsupported in the classroom you know everybody loses yeah you know, it's not just, mm-hmm. it's not just the, uh, the disabled child or that family, you know, everybody in the classroom is losing, including the teacher who I, I truly believe is there to support all children. Um, but the same thing kind of happens outside uh, of the classroom. So if your child isn't supported, uh, you as a parent have to work two, three times as hard um, at home to, you know, kind of maintain uh, what you believe to be appropriate or help, you know, ensure access. So we really found ourselves um, in this negative mindset a lot. And as I said earlier, you find yourself having to kind of focus on all of these negative aspects of your child and amplify and highlight them so that you can kind of chronically go back to somebody saying, hey, look, see, this is why, you know, XYZ support needs to be in place. See what's happening. And it, it, it really is a painful, at least it was a painful experience for me. I remember sitting there, I've outlined this a few places in writing. Like I remember sitting there on the couch with my wife and we would have these, um, you know, triplicate. They seem like they were always in triplicate, right? Like you, these forms and these questionnaires about what your child can and cannot do. And it, mm-hmm. it would tear your soul out as a parent to sit there and have to grade, you know, what your child could do or couldn't do in comparison to what was considered, you know, quote unquote, normal. 
And so for me, that was mm -hmm. really part of the a painful experience. The other part was watching uh, my daughter be excluded from the things that my son had no problem accessing or navigating, you know, whether that's, you know, even something as simple as playtime on the, on the, you know, the kindergarten playground or on the swing set, those types of really exclusionary practices. And it wasn't necessarily things that were planned or plotted by people. It was just because our system is so broken and access is so difficult for these children that I really felt like there were things that could, one would be just considered baseline normal access, but other things that would really be enriching for her that she was losing out on. And then because you, you spend so much time as a parent kind of fighting systems and advocating, and you might be dealing with other issues at home that are you know, more time consuming, right? Your, your meal preparation has to be different. How you lay out uh, clothing options has to be different. You have to, you have a calendar system at home and you've got picture exchange maybe. And so you, everything isn't as uh, necessarily uh, facile or seamless as it would be for a neurotypical uh, peer. So there's always, you know, and not that I'm complaining about all of that extra time, but it is time. And that's time that takes away from um, having conversations or having social interactions with other parents in a way that you'd be able to share your experience and let them know what your uh, life is like so that they would have a window into um, you know what life is like uh, when somebody has differences and it really it, it mm -hmm. so for me that kind of segregation uh, where it you know there were some families that uh, when they knew that our daughter um, was autistic, really, you know, pulled back. Um, and there were some that was very overt, and there was some that it was just, it was the byproduct of us personally not having the time to be able to have, you know, kind of, you know, routine or regular social contact. So for us, you know, that was, mm -hmm. that was the difficulty uh, of that, those early years when you're, you know, we had this, you know, I don't say role model, but we had this first example with our son where you were doing play dates and you were doing X, Y, Z, and you were, you know, there were, you know, mommy and me type classes. And there were all of these different things uh, that allowed you to stay engaged kind of in the social network and fabric of our community. Uh, and that really was kind of ripped away, um, you know, as our daughter aged. And that certainly is not her fault. It's just uh, a byproduct of how really unsupported not only these kids are, but families like ours are. Yeah. I know you said she did get diagnosed mm -hmm. earlier, especially if you look at kind of like the statistics, but how old was she when well, she was actually so, diagnosed? Um, th it's true and it's not true. So she received a, uh, a diagnosis of a, a childhood, uh, effectively what they call a childhood disability, like not otherwise specified. And that was very oh. early on. So that was at least 10, 11 months of age. And then the, you know, kind of the functional or working uh, diagnosis. And I'm, I'm really kind of a, a label averse person, uh, but it, you know, she was given quote unquote uh, sensory processing disorder um, label for very many years and not actually until age eight um, was she actually uh identified as being autistic so but everything that we were doing mm -hmm. so I say that but 
everything that we were doing from a therapy intervention services, every conversation we had with just about every therapist was, well, this is what I would be doing um, for autistic children. This is the therapy we would do um, if she were autistic. So it was all effectively all of the services were the, uh, the same and that's what the focus was. Um, it's just, I really think that the reason we did not land on a diagnosis sooner is that a lot of people don't feel like this is a condition or, uh, uh, you know, brain wiring or a disability that, that affects girls and women. And we know that from, you know, there's lots mm -hmm. of other stories that are uh, starting to kind of bubble their way to the surface as these girls become women and start to share their, their childhood stories. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you said you're adverse to labels. So how, how was that for you then kind of going through these process first, like you said, like PDD and OS and then sensory processing and then eventually autism. Was that hard for you to hear all these different, you know, kind of I, I didn't love it because it didn't necessarily change anything. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, okay, fine. It really didn't kind of click for me that, okay, the only, the, the importance of a label is, um, it's a ticket, it's access, you know, it's a, it's a punch card mm -hmm. um, to that wheelchair ramp so that you can get in the building. It, it you know, it, it didn't necessarily mesh with my own kind of preconceived notions of, you know, it's just, like I said, it, it, I've said in my, the book, it's kind of a my own teenager stance, right? Like, don't label me, don't label my child. You don't, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, and just because you mm -hmm. have kind of this arbitrary or abstract method of categorizing a child, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, um, it's more comparative than it is illustrative. Like it says nothing about who she is. So I really, that was, you know, that is, and still to this day is, is difficult for me, but I understand, you know, I, hopefully I can learn and grow and adapt, but I understand now that in our society, in our culture, and the way things work, that if you don't have that punch card, it is very hard to get access and, and, and proper accommodations. But I, yeah, I, I, I still don't, mm -hmm. I still don't love it. And now that she's older, uh, we talk to her about it, and you know, try and get her feelings on it. And it's, I think she might, it, maybe it's some of it's kind of rubbed off from me, and I'm sure, uh, you know, kids are very perceptive and they know what their parents think, but I, she has very similar feelings about um, identity and labels uh, and that they're, you know, definitely two different things. She's going to chip <laughs> off the old block. I don't know. She's got a lot of my wife in her. So. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> uh, no, I, I asked that because I think for a lot of parents, they feel that way. And I think especially like, I know I definitely felt that way in the beginning. Um, I mean, it's been a long time now, but I was it, for different reasons. Honestly, right. I was just terrified of the label. I was really, really scared of what the label meant. And for me, it was kind of also like how you were saying right. it's, it's a ticket. Um, but it was more so I needed to realize that, you know, just because Logan had this new label or diagnosis, like right. he was still the same kid. And I guess, I don't know, there was something that I was scared somehow he was going to change. Um, and coming to that realization was like huge for me. And it was something I really needed to do to like move past and kind of 
right right no and it changes that that label changes nothing about your child yet it it says everything Mm -hmm. about the way our culture and our society works that we have this kind of pre-primed fear that there's something wrong with our kid and that's um you know that's more of a diagnosis of the american society than it is of the child themselves so it's it's yeah you know i i it was uh i guess a struggle early on it it wasn't a a fear i guess of what that meant for her in the sense that um you know, something was somehow wrong. Um, I just didn't want somebody who didn't know anything about her um, categorizing her uh, under something that I don't think very many people understand. I totally, totally can relate to that for sure. Um, tell me, um, you mentioned it I a do. couple times, but you have a book and I'm excited to hear more about it that. Is, tell me about your book. Uh, it's our story. And it, um, it's a much longer version of uh, some of the earlier questions you asked, uh, but really is, um, I can tell you what it's not. It's not my daughter's story. Um, so I really um, tried not to uh, voice her at all, but really what I wanted to get out there and put in print was um, kind of that early intervention year through, you know, kind of middle elementary, uh, but really kind of expose how difficult um, this system can be for parents to navigate. And it's really kind of, to get at your question about how I felt early on about labels, it's really kind of a transformative story about me. Um, And I think transformative for a lot of parents kind of illustrates the changes that kind of just happen um, as you navigate these processes on behalf of your child and how that kind of shifts your focus and how you view the world. Uh, but really it was, um, it, it started as a method of kind of coping uh, with the adversity we're facing as a family and then kind of took on a new life really as something to give voice to so many families that feel voiceless, something that families like ours that kind of feel like they're fighting these systems or navigating these systems in isolation and they feel like, you know, nobody else must be kind of going through uh, this or nobody really understands this. I really wanted to get that out um, so that a families like ours, um, you know, could see themselves in it and it kind of becoming somewhat of a rallying point um, or, a, or a basis of understanding that, yes, what you're experiencing is real and you are not crazy. Um, the system is not designed for you or your children. Uh, but also I wrote it in a way that's you know, I've written so many, you know, actual like complaints uh, in my life as we've gone through these processes. And I really did not want it to become, you know, this, you know, this crazy special education parent rant. Um, it, you know, that's not, uh, and that's not what it is, but I wanted to be, to be very clear. So it is a memoir, uh, but I wrote it in the style of, they call it like narrative nonfiction. So it is, um, it reads like a novel. It reads like um, someone's. It reads like someone's story, and really, the goal was to get people um, sucked in um, and to see themselves in my own story. So, 
and really recruit, um, like I said earlier, when we were talking before, really recruit allies uh, into our world. Because I think, you know, there's, I see it in kind of concentric circles. You know, there's us, you, the parent, the family unit, and you kind of are experiencing that world. And you kind of finally can break out or, you know, you have this podcast, you have access to all of these other families who are navigating these same systems. So you kind of have this community or this network, and it might be a supportive network. But really beyond that circle are the people that are kind of adjacent that haven't had our experience, um, but if they knew about our experience would be willing to be uh, you know, are caring and supportive. And it's really, so it's as much as it is about me uh, and our experience, it's really trying to bring in, um, you know, allies, recruit allies so that they know kind of what we've, what our experience has been. You know, I, we were talking earlier, you, you really don't need to be, you know, the victim of misogyny or have been sexually assaulted to be supportive of the Me Too movement. Uh, and there really needs to be some fundamental structural change within the special education system. Um, and I really wanted to spotlight that, but you cannot do that without allies or without support or without people from outside of your own community or bubble uh, to help kind of move you through and navigate some of these processes on your behalf. So that was that was the the big impetus uh, for the book, and some of it was like I said, some of it was just catharsis for me. There's some chapters that uh, I wrote while I was sitting in IEP meetings because I was so frustrated um, with the process and the things that just were not happening, um, and the barricades and the blocking and you know the rules that were supposed to be designed to support children yet somehow are being turned around and manipulated and being used as roadblocks and barricades instead of, instead of ramps. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the victim of of really anything to, you know, have empathy for it and have a heart for it. And like you and I were, we talked about that before we started, but it, it really comes from that awareness. And I feel like that's something I think now I always hear people shouting, we want acceptance and we want inclusion. And I'm always in the back going like, but we still need awareness because I feel like until, until we have awareness at like, at that level, it can't just be like, oh yeah, I know what autism is. It, it really needs kind of like how you said to be that sort of look inside our lives and the day to day. And like you said, recruiting allies, I, I think that that part is so important and that's why we still need awareness because there, you know, I mean, you and I know, but it's like this life, there's so many layers to it and there's so much that goes into it. And I think having, you know, people who are maybe outside of our community, but kind of looking in and can be those allies, I think is so powerful. And I think that's how we kind of well, get to the next step. Yeah, but you're, you're doing like what you're doing is phenomenal. That. I mean, you know, I think there's actually two things that are phenomenal about your show and what's happening with uh, the guests that you have on is that, you know, we talked earlier about you, you kind of have to be as a special education parent or the parent of a child, uh, a disabled child, you kind of have to be the advocate, you know, strong person and really kind of have to push and, and elbow your way through things or be the person that's defending or you really, it really has to, it's an active process, right? And it's, 
it can be very guarded. Um, it's, you know, it kind of feels like a moment. In fact, you know, you get some of these books. Um, I always kind of complain about it, but you get some of these advocacy books and it's like advocate for your child, fight for your child. You know, it's, it's this very confrontational thing. You know, parents mm -hmm. like us also, you know, we, in one hand, we're holding that, right? The kind of tough as nails, you know, we're going to do anything possible for our child. But on the other hand, you've got to be, you know, when people come on your show and share their stories, you're, you're being exposing and completely raw, right? Because you want other people to be able to understand what you're experiencing, right? And you're sharing stuff that is, you wouldn't necessarily share with the stranger, but because you believe so deeply that it is important uh, that your child uh, be accepted and, you know, people be aware, right? A true awareness of what um, an autistic individual's needs actually mm -hmm. are. You know, you kind of, you, you, you spill your guts, you pour yourself out. So it's just really kind of, right? You know, it's. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I've always been sort of a spill your guts type of lady. So <laughs> it's not, it's not too far outside my wheelhouse. Um, but I, I really appreciate you sharing that because that really is like the, the basis of, of what I try to do with the show. So I'm, I'm glad that you recognize that. But I, and I think, again, like, you know, parents like me and parents like you, you know, we're just trying to kind of move things along. And I think like, it takes all these conversations and, you know, podcasts and books and all other right. I used to kind of go to data and facts. I thought that that would be, you know, motivating or illustrating to people. Um, you know, so we need point to kind of the, the studies that, that talk about the life expectancy of autistic individual being half of that of a typical American you know, kind of pointing at data points, and like you were talking about earlier, the, the unsupported classrooms, you know, there's there's pretty significant uh, research out there to show that at least uh, one in five children are disabled, yet the in special education is nowhere near that. So, you know, there's these huge percentages of children that are unsupported in the classroom you know, I kind of put together like these PowerPoint presentations with all sorts of data. I do statewide down to granular within the school district or even at certain schools. And really I've found that that was so much less impactful than actually sharing, you know, your own, right? Because it, it it real for people. It makes it tangible mm -hmm. and it's something that they can relate to because they you know, a very similar experience. So it's, I think these forums, um, I actually think they're probably the most important uh, forum is that, you know, building, you know, by sharing stories, you're really building empathy and building awareness and building a larger community and, you know, really recruiting and building allies. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. I think, you know, having the, the data and the facts are, it's important to kind of keep those in your back pocket. But I think what people really relate to right. and, Feelings. you know, can connect with is that vulnerability. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what I mean by when I say I've always been bleeding hard. I've just always had that mentality. But I mean, it took, especially with, with this stuff, you know, everything with my son in the beginning, it was like, it was so personal and kind of how you had said, you know, with like the labels and stuff, like how you, you didn't want people to, you know, judge your daughter or not have a preconceived notion of her without knowing her. Like I felt that so extremely with my son and I felt like so protective and guarded of him that it was like, I, I almost didn't want to talk about anything because I was, I was still dealing with it. I was still grappling with it. And it was, it was really hard. But then once I kind of turned the corner, I realized like, oh, it really is so important to share. And and not only just for me, I think it's, you know, I always say that that's, it's therapeutic for me just to do the show, but then talking to other people and the people listening, like, I feel like that's how we all kind of well, turn yeah, the corner, I think is I'm listening to each other's stories. And so. I'm typically, my, my baseline is to be insanely private. So Right. And not to be sharing like, you, you know, you don't, <laughs> I will with people that I trust and, you know, you know, close friends and confidence, but it's not, it's not my nature. My wife is the complete opposite. She'll talk to a wall. Um, but <laughs> she's great, but she, she and she's I have, a- you know, it's, you know, introvert, extrovert, right. It's completely, <laughs> you know, we have different, different methods and, you know, to your, one of your earlier questions, like, why did I write the book? I, mm-hmm. I felt obviously this for me was transformative this experience like I, you know you go from someone who isn't necessarily well a aware uh, but be really comfortable um you know sharing and exposing you know all the rawness of what's happening uh, in your life or in your home with complete strangers that you know really might not necessarily care <laughs> um but you're doing it in a way that you know, you're trying to get help but it mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, I had a few families in mind as I was writing, knowing that I wanted to bring this thing to life and to get it in front of people that it's just not in their nature to, you know, to either be argumentative or confrontational. You know, they, it's as much as they love their children, as much as they, um, you know, want what's best for their children, it's just not in their DNA um, to be that kind of fierce warrior parent and it's you know I kind of come back to well you shouldn't have to be mm-hmm. um, but so I mean getting back to why I kind of mm-hmm. wrote I, I really want this to be something that families like them can point to and say yes this is exactly what I'm experiencing and I you know I really need your help absolutely I like how you use the word transformative because I think that you know, everybody listening to the show, whether you're early in the journey or a little bit later, I, I do think there is, and and I think there's almost like different times where, <laughs> you know, you're like almost like the snake, like shedding your skin. And it's like, I, yeah, I, I think back to, you know, the, the person I was before all this. And <laughs> in some ways, like, I don't even recognize myself, <laughs> you know, it really, when you say it's so, it's so true. And I think, um, I think about that a lot when I, when I'm, you know, doing the show, thinking about the parents who maybe don't have that, right. They're maybe not as quick to, you know, jump in the fight kind of thing. Um, 
talk to those parents a lot and I, I, I have a heart for them because it's not something that I struggle with, but I can totally see how a person would. And I think it's really, again, just like having, having like your book and listening to other people's stories. I feel like that is what kind of gives us that strength, you know, right. and, and drawing on these other experiences, knowing like you're not alone and it's look different for everybody. Um, but I think, like you said, that, that transformative piece, like there's, I do think there's a moment for, for everybody that they, they feel that, that it's like, they kind of look back and right. they go, Oh, and I'm different yeah, now. And, and maybe you don't realize that it's happening too. Right. I mean, but it's happening. You know, some of those early years, you know, like mm-hmm. the zero through three, before we even were kind of, you know, in that position we were having to engage the school district, you know, we, I mean, literally we, my wife and I sat down, we were looking at pictures and everybody, including my daughter was, you know, we were full of joy. I mean, there were just these, you know, smiling, wonderful moments. Um, but then when you kind of enter into these situations that are not pleasant and are not as smooth and the wheels aren't greased, it, it really can eat at you and change you in not positive ways. You know, I sat down, I'd written the book in pieces and obviously gone through the editing process, which was very long and tedious. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth, but it's kind of a disjointed way of, of reading the book. And I, because it's real and it's mine. Um, but I had to sit down to read kind of the final proof or the final draft to make sure that everything, you know, you know, there weren't any glaring errors and, you know, whatnot. And I got, when I got done with it, I turned to my wife and said, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I wrote it the way I wrote it but I am not the same person that wrote this book. And that is because we're, you know, we're in a better place mm-hmm. and we're no longer kind of, you know, having to do this dance, um, you know, in our, in our public school system, you know, we're now you know, 91 miles away from, um, you know, where the story took place um, and a lot of other kind of crazy battles in between, but it's, you it is, it's crazy uh, to think, but there's, you know, silver lining to everything. Yes, you become this, you know, really you find a strength that you didn't necessarily know that you had. Um, but I think that comes at a price. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 you know, it, it can take some of the smiles off of your face sometimes. And it's, it's, um, you know, I, I want to be able to recognize that for parents that you know, if you're struggling with, you know, your own self-esteem or how you feel about your child or, you know, some level of depression. That's, and I say, it's not necessarily a say that it's normal because it's, it's forced upon you, but those feelings are normal. And that's, and it's, um, that is that for me, that was some of that pain. Right. So. I think there's definitely, um, I, I keep hearing in my head that phrase sadder, but wiser. <laughs> I don't necessarily love, but I, I think it is kind of applicable. Um, but I would say I can definitely relate to that. Um, but I, I think, and you had kind of said this before that it's like this, it's like an ongoing, all of this, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's not like an end in sight. And I think like there's, there's going to be those right. joyful times and then there's going to be the the tougher times. And I mean, my son is only eight and we have been through 
many of both at right. this point. And I foresee many more <laughs> of both in our future. But I think what it does do, at least for me, is no, it makes 100%. me really, really Absolutely. appreciate those so, joyful times. You know, I kind of have this, you know, in-home mm-hmm. experiment. Um, you know, my son is a year and a half older uh, and neurotypical. And we've, you know, you you ride that roller coaster as a parent as well, right? You know, he has highs, he has lows, he has, you know, adversity and things that he's faced. And, you know, there's moments of joy and then there's moments of sadness and grief. And that's, that is the human experience. Um, but it, it really brings into sharp relief how, you know, this world really is constructed for people like him and not for people like, uh, you know, my daughter or your son. You know, it's just, and, and we don't know it because we kind of walk through it and it's just background noise, right? That, and if you think about it historically for people with disabilities, right? You know, there wasn't always braille on things. Uh, there wasn't always wheelchair ramps, right? Those things were kind of hard fought mm-hmm. and really required engagement and awareness and, and allies again to really, you know, make the world more accessible for them. Um, and I kind of feel like that, you know, that's, that's the, in addition to just being parents and being the person that loves your child, that is kind of this extra responsibility that I think a lot of us carry. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has really been a very delightful and enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for, for sharing everything and being so open. Can you share yeah, where people can um, connect well, with a, you, where they can sure. find like, the book so and all that good stuff? Um, this has been great talking to you. And thank you for this platform because it's, um, I think it's incredibly helpful uh, for a lot of people and probably people that you don't know. Um, but yeah, you can find me, um, you kind of can find me anywhere. Uh, Instagram, I'm there, uh, author Aaron Wright. But if kind of the home base for all operations, so to speak, is the website, which is uh, authoraaronwright.com. Uh, there's information about me. There's information about my book. Uh, I have some uh, kind of freebies on there. I've got a couple sample chapters. I actually had gone through and done an audiobook uh, sample chapter. So that's available too. If um, you want to listen to that, or maybe you have a visual disability and are better with the auditory. Um, I do uh, have a Facebook page and occasionally I'll make an appearance on Twitter, which I'm really kind of Twitter averse, but, uh, <laughs> so mo- the home base really is, is the website <laughs> and you can find out more information that we we are going to have a, a formal launch event on the 26th of January, um, with Bianca Murray, who's the author of, um, not sure if you've read hum if you don't know the words or if you want to make god laugh but um amazing author and it should be a really fun event yeah that sounds amazing i like for someone who says that you're like well, a, a private person you know, that you say a, you can find a, me a, anywhere a, that's part of the transformation <laughs> right like i really my nature is to be a homebody you know love hanging out with my family love hanging out with my friends but beyond that this is not that I've been drag kicking and streaming, but really getting out there, getting out there on social media and all that kind of stuff is really a completely foreign experience for me. Like I just don't, but it's okay. I'm learning. I'm, I'm slowly, I'm slowly getting there, but um, you know, it's just, a, again, it's another yeah. one of those things that you kind of do as a, you know, a parent like us, it's that you find yourself 
might not necessarily be in your comfort zone, but you're putting yourself out there because you, you know it's what's ultimately best for your family and your child. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. So good for you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank <laughs> you so much. All right. Well, this has been great chatting with you. Bye. Thanks so much. Here. Okay. Bye. For you, the listeners of Adventures in Autism podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I often get asked for book recommendations related to autism, and one that I always go back to is called The Out of Sync Child by Carol Kranowitz, and it was actually recommended to me by a friend who is also an OT, and I read this book years ago before Logan was even diagnosed. It's not necessarily just for autism. It also goes into like sensory processing disorder or ADHD, but it's just very valuable information and a really great resource that I still pull from today, even though I read it years ago. So that's a really good one. Sometimes just to get my mind off things, I also just enjoy good old chiclet. <laughs> I love anything by Emily Giffen, like something borrowed or something blue, and those are available on Audible as well, but you can pick from any of their titles. So to download Download your free audiobook today. Go to audibletrial.com slash adventures in autism. All one word. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash adventures in autism for your free audiobook. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Aaron. Wasn't he just awesome? I really came away from that conversation feeling like such a sense of purpose and especially with everything he talked about just with, you know, advocacy and really kind of supporting, you know, this movement. And I love how he talked about finding allies and recruiting people to be allies. That's something that as much as I, you know, love this show and I promote it and I want people to listen to it. I always think, you know, the people listening to the show are going to be people who are parents of a child on the spectrum or who have a loved one on the spectrum. And I feel like Aaron really pushed me to kind of think bigger. And, you know, this show, I hope it is kind of an introduction for people who maybe don't know anything about autism or are new to this world, even if they don't have a loved one on the spectrum, just to kind of give them a glimpse inside of it. And obviously, I think we need support for each other within our community but Aaron is so right in that like it's it's bigger than just those of us in the autism community it has to kind of reach far and wide so I really love chatting with him thank you so much Aaron definitely make sure you check out his book and follow him on Instagram he has a great account over there if you want to connect with me you can find me on Facebook at Adventures and Autism Podcast on Instagram at Adventures and Autism Pod or you can email me at Adventures and Autism 2018 at yahoo.com Again, I love hearing from you guys. If you have a question, feedback, whatever, let me know. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please send me an email. Let me know what you'd want to talk about if you did come on the show. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you would be so kind to leave a rating and review over on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. It really does help other people to find the show and it just makes me really happy. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening and until next time, take care. Music.